So, what if you could rewrite the constitution of your country? Where would you even start? 190 countries have constitutions today and they form the basis of our governance systems. In this episode, we examine Chile's journey towards a new constitution and ask what the world can learn from it. I am Arvin Gato. Welcome to Power in Play, a podcast about how power is distributed, used and held accountable and why governance matters for people and planet. Our main guest is former Minister of Justice and Human Rights in Chile, Dr. Marcela Rios. Afterwards, I invite two frontier experts, Professor Benedicte Bull and Director Alfredo Samudio, to reflect on the conversation with Marcela. They both have an extraordinary insight into how the rest of the world can learn from Chile. Marcela became minister in the Chilean government in January 2022 and resigned in early January 2023 after controversy and criticism concerning the pardoning of protesters who were part of the social uprising that started in 2019. The protests ushered in a new political situation in Chile while also causing death and injury to many people and widespread destruction of property. A critical part of the protests was the call for renewal of the constitution of the country, which has been in effect since the autocratic regime of Pinochet introduced it in 1980. In October 2020, a referendum asked the Chilean population whether they wanted a new constitution, to which a resounding 78% voted yes. However, in September 2022, while Marcela was Minister of Justice, a large majority voted against a new draft constitution. So what happened in between? Marcella gives her reflections on her role in government and what hard-earned lessons should be noted also by people outside of Chile. At the time this episode is published, a renewed process is getting underway, aiming for another referendum on a draft constitution on December 17th. But before we begin, let me just note, things are happening fast in Chile. And a major political development happened between my conversation with Marcella and the experts. A commission mandated to produce a new draft was elected and the political dynamic of the process is impacted as a result. As such, Marcella's reflections must be understood in that light, something the experts also reflect upon. Marcella has over 20 years of experience in the design, implementation and execution of development projects and she has been working with UNDP for almost 15 years. As a practitioner, policymaker and researcher, she specializes in democracy, governance, development, public policy and institutional design with a gender focus. In fact, I had the pleasure of having her as a staff member at Oslo Governance Center, where she worked with me on the strategic direction of the center. One day, however, she stopped taking my calls and a few days later, when she appeared on the steps of the presidential palace being presented as a minister, I understood why. So, Marcella, it's really great to have you on this uh, podcast. We've been looking forward to it uh, for a while now. And um, yes, welcome. It's good to it's good to have you here. Thank you, Arvin. Thank you for, uh, to the center and congratulations on the po podcast. It's an, it's an honor, honor to be here, really. <laughs> so we have a, a, a lot of things to talk about uh, today. We feel, uh, we feel we need to use this opportunity to have you um, <laughs> to, to really probe your uh, experience and your thoughts and, and expertise 
on many different issues. Um, and just uh, perhaps as a taster at the beginning to say that a key word for this episode is how legitimacy in large transformational transition processes impacts on the relationship between citizens and governments. But we'll come back to that, Marcella. First, uh, I would like to just ask you, you know, let's call it a rather personal question. Um, you came into government uh, January last year as a Minister of Justice uh, on a wave of uh, demonstrations, at times quite violent demonstrations. 29 people were killed between uh, October 29th and, and I think it was March 2020. Um, but uh, And there was a lot of expectation for the government. And, and you left uh, UNDP, you in fact left the Oslo Governance Center to join <laughs> uh, the new Chilean government. Um, can you say a little bit about what that felt like to be part of that uh, new political endeavor? Well, for me, it was a major, you know, vital transformational step. You know, I'm a political scientist by training and I had always worked on democracy, on politics. And I've always been fascinated by politics, uh, but I was always on the sidelines and, you know, uh, assisting institutions rather than taking decisions myself. So I, I think it. You know, when the president called me directly and asked me to be part of his cabinet, uh, you know, in Chile and I guess in other countries we have the same. If the president calls, it's it's really hard to say no because, you know, we were living in such a uh, profound moment of transformation, and I really wanted to contribute with my know-how and my expertise. I thought I could uh, bring, um, you know, something different to a government. Uh, coming from the outside, but it was also very risky because, uh, you know, having a, you know, um, a career in the UN and in uh, in the academy uh, is, is challenging, but it's safe. <laughs> it's a lot safer than politics. Uh, but I thought it was uh, a moment when I wanted to take this, uh, this decision. And for me, it was, it was very profound, you know, um, all sorts of uh, feelings uh, at the moment. And I kept thinking whether I was going to be able to, you know, step up to a task. And since I am a social scientist, I I, I think the whole time that I was in government, I kept sort of being feeling that I was inside and outside trying to observe everything that was happening so that I wouldn't forget. Uh, and uh, often trying to write down things that would happen during the day or, um, taping a little note, voice note from to myself to think of it uh, later on, because I think it, even when you know a lot about politics and governments, it's never the same to know about governments than to be in government. So I think that the experience of being and the the urgency of everything, you know, sometimes when you're outside and you want to push good public policies, you get exacerbated because politicians you know, don't have time to think through you, you when from the outside, you think that they're pushing things too fast. And when you're inside, you think that you're moving so slow because people really need answers to to what the, the immediate needs. So that was fascinating. And, and I think the most, um, you know, uh, rewarding thing, which is, sounds like a cliche, but I think it is true, is connected to citizens, to mm. everyday people, to having, you know, solving sometimes little problems. And I think that's something that I learned, that I decided to do 
at the outset, and I think it was something that it's a very important lesson, is that you can't just get stuck on pushing, you know, big transformations. You have to be also uh, dedicate time every day to solving problems, small problems. I think having the opportunity to change, you know, the conditions of people, uh, working conditions or living conditions, it's, it's, it's so gratifying that um, that at the end it sort of weighs over the the negative sides of uh, politics. That's you know fascinating to listen to, Marcela. Can I just follow up with one question uh, on um, this very special context that you entered into government um, uh, with a lot of expectations on the new government, uh, which. You know, maybe not directly came on the back of uh, of large protests. Millions of people in the street. Uh, many people lost their lives. Thousands of people were injured. But uh, also a sense of an historical injustice that uh, many people felt needed correcting. And this justice was a key part of this uh, of this uh, you know, uprising in a way. How did it feel to become the Minister of Justice and and sense these expectations uh, every day? In what way does that impact on your on your workday as a as a minister? Well, you know the protests cause um, such a, a destruction, but also so much suffering to so many people because there was repression there was people lose you know more than 500 people being injured in their eyes uh people killed and uh but also a lot of uh, the this destruction of public infrastructure and public property and a lot of people's livelihoods depended on things that were destroyed you know restaurants and pubs and and, and other types of shops that were the city centers of many cities were destroyed. So this had a really dramatic impact on the lives of many people. And I think um, the way that uh, protests were perceived uh, was changing over time. Um, also because of the impact of COVID. You know, COVID had a really, I think, uh, important uh, role in changing people's perceptions and state of mind because and and that's something I think also you have to learn when you're in politics that uh, perceptions uh, can change rapidly in a society because of uh, traumatic or important events you know a bombing a fire uh, a flood an earthquake can change dramatically what a society was demanding perceiving from one week to the next. And in the case of Chile, I think to understand the constitutional process, but to understand what the government did uh, and, and the reaction to the protests, I think we cannot really understand it without the impact of COVID, of COVID because it did change people's uh, expectations and, and perceptions. And, you know, we had this commitment, the president had this commitment of uh, addressing uh, the the impacts of the violations of human rights that had taken place during the, the social revolt. Uh, it was uh, in the government program. It was something that uh, had been committed. And um, and having gone through that, uh, you know, uh, on, on going forth in a decision to provide pardons to specific people who had been condemned uh, for um, uh, 
crimes that they had committed during, during the revolt, it was a very controversial measure and uh, it, it caused a political uh, uproar. And uh, I think ministers in a presidential system, but probably in any kind of regime, are supposed to be also helping solve problems. And, and, and when there is uh, so much uh, opposition to a measure, uh, there something needed to be done. And in a presidential system, ministers are supposed to be fuses uh, to help solve problems. So my stepping down was a way of uh, contributing to a piece, a very controversial decision, even though a deci the decision that was carried right carried out with strict uh, legal and normative uh, procedures, but that it was controversial nonetheless, and many people um, thought it was in the timing or the, or, the, or the fundamental thing to do at that time. You are a, uh, a true uh, political scientist uh, with a long uh, experience in academia, uh, but also as a practitioner, 15 years in, in UNDP and in other contexts working on governance issues, democracy and human rights. Um, and um, I think, uh, you know, what one of the things that uh, I've been um, thinking about lately was when you look at the Chilean experience um, of the social uh, outcry um, in 2019 and 2020, which contained this uh, call for a new constitution uh, and how that uh, uh, first referendum on whether there was going to be another a constitution, new constitution or not, um, uh, got an extraordinary amount of support. And uh, how then, uh, when a new constitution draft was presented to the electorate, it was uh, rejected by also a very large uh, majority. Uh, and I just wanted you to reflect on that, Marcella, because it was such a core promise of the new government and it was such a clear call for a new constitution. Uh, you know, what? I mean, of course, there's many reasons for this, but to you, what are the most important reasons for this, let's call it, lack of support for a new constitution? Uh, in the space of only uh, two years. How did that happen? How did that lack of uh, support come about? Well, I think three main reasons. Uh, there's a lot of factors and everybody is uh, debating over this. But I think my take on this is that first, um, the, the, the way that the Constitution operated and the fact that you had so many people who were going into politics because of the electoral system. This was 155 people elected specifically uh, to draft a constitution. The electoral system that we used was different from the electoral system that we use for Congress. So the type of people who enter uh, were very different. And that at the beginning was really valued by citizens because it was ordinary citizens, you know, more diverse group of uh, people. A lot of them had never, you know, been part of any uh, formal political space. But soon after, uh, I think that uh, the, because the convention worked as a as a formal political institutions, uh, you had um, you know a lot of debate, discussions, and conflicts over regulations, over rules. People don't have you know they have contradictory desires because at the same time that they want that they don't want you know uh, politicians the same people as always. 
they also don't want people without experience. So it's kind of how do you, you know, arrived at the adequate mix. It's, it's not something that it's easy to arrive. So that was the first thing I think that the convention also didn't never had a, a good sort of communications, um, you know, uh, uh, policy. They, ne they were never able to 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 operate. Uh, in, in a way that was helped them, you know, socialize what they were doing in another way. Uh, I I think that's understandable because you are creating an institution from nothing, and you have to, you know, write the constitution and also worry about all these other things. But that was a problem. The second the second reason why this didn't work was the alienation of uh, elites, and I think we have learned from comparative constitutional processes that once that you cannot have a, you know, successful uh, constitutional uh, building process when uh, a section of important section of the elites are alienated or are working against it. And in the case of Chile, you had most probably all all sectors of the elites uh, alienated by this process. The traditional political parties, because they were excluded due to the electoral system they hardly had any say within the constitutions they didn't have a chance of you know making having a say in the content of the constitution um, just just an, exa an example the constitution wanted to uh, do away with the senate so you can imagine that all senators really were against this uh, this the incumbents of course were not really happy with these changes uh, but also the media and the business community. So you had all these sort of alienated groups of the elites uh, working against this process, uh, really kind of um, actively, you know, uh, in opposition to specific parts and the entire text. And then the last, the last reason that I think has been less commented, but it's, I think it's very important, is how the appetite for change and transformation had diminished in Chilean society due to COVID. Because COVID, you know, um, really installed us in every country a sense of insecurity, of precariousness, of, you know, uh, not just because of health, but because of employment, because of the economy. So people who were really keen on promoting grand social transformation and changing public policies and changing the structure of the state at the beginning or right after the, the social revolt, Two years later, we're really not so uh, interested in transformation, and they were much more preoccupied with employment, with security, with you know concrete things. And uh, I think that also so much change um, altogether, all at once, was maybe too much for a society at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think those were the, the factors that ended up uh, causing this massive rejection and that um, in the second round you know we're in the middle of a second attempt to write this constitution will be an open question because as we said at the beginning the key word in this is legitimacy and and um, having people you know uh, not just approve a text in a referendum but really thinking that this is the constitution that they want to adhere to let me just 
grab onto this issue of elites and inequality because it was such a dominating theme also in the social uh, uprising in 2019 and 2020 um inequality and and it is a, you know there are some fascinating statistics uh, chile is uh, a member of the oecd uh, first member of the uh, oecd from latin america has a high me- uh, gross domestic product per per capita of more than $25,000 but more than half of the population lives on about $500. So you have an enormous uh, inequality, probably one of the most unequal societies in the world. So in a way, it was inequality that was uh, was a fuel for these protests. And then what you're saying now in your second reason for why the constitutional process, uh, f- first part of it failed, was also inequality in that uh, elites were not included. Now, um, this inequality um what what in what ways did that directly impact on this process um and this issue of legitimacy i mean is it hard to build legitimacy for any process when there's such big inequalities and 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 uh, you know how can one overcome that challenge i think structural inequalities are a major um struct you know obstacle for well working democracies you know i think that uh you know you can't you once uh, liberal democracy only functions in uh, competition among elites but you're not really able to change the, the conditions of living of people then it's really hard to construct legitimacy because when people don't perceive that politics or the state, even if it's not a democracy, but if they, if people perceive that the government is not making a difference in the way that you live, it's hard for them to adhere to. But uh, but it's not the only reason. And I think that uh, we, we have to understand that, uh, you know, politic, polit, political processes also transpire in this other dimension of, in, the, in a cultural or symbolic dimension. Uh, because you know the 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 unrest in Chile was material in the sense of inequality, but it it was not just material because it, you know it, it was also there was a lot of um, malaise with uh, discrimination, with sexism, with classism, uh, with the people because people feel that they were not treated with dignity. Mm-hmm. No, it's not just that you know I'm the problem is not that I'm poor, is that you know, I deserve to be treated as a human being, even if I'm poor. And uh, and I think um, what we learned from this is, and and I've read a couple of historians, and it, it's an interesting uh, take on this, is that in Chile we have had even this. This was probably the, the not, not probably this was the biggest and most violent revolt in the history of the country. But the country has experienced revolts. Uh, every 40 or 50 years because it has been historically a very unequal society and we're and a, with a very sort of oligarchic grab of power uh, you know the uh, distribution of power so uh, at the outset of every attempt of society to uh, transform this uh, you know the the elites hold on power elites elites always come out you know, in being able to reorient uh, uh, this uh, massive protest and get, you know, continue holding on to power. And I think that uh, uh, this is something that happened in this case as well, because 
um, because there's such a stronghold on on the debate uh, by traditional elites that it was difficult for people to, you know, to kind of understand, um, or not 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 understand, but uh, to to be able to, you know, participate in this process in an equal footing. Um, so. And you mentioned this uh, issue about um, the convention for developing the draft of the um, of the constitution. The 155 member uh, convention was um, was non political party affiliated uh, people. I, th I think mm -hmm. I saw somewhere that more than a hundred of them did not have direct political affiliation. Um, and but you also at the same time uh, we have this fascinating statistics from Chile that. Uh, generally, people's affiliations to political parties have dropped since the 1990s, ex you know, extremely quickly from around 70, 80 percent to today, less than 20 percent of people who feel affiliated to one political party. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, how does that, you know, that fact uh, factor into this uh, <laughs> uh, this challenge of creating a legitimate process when, on the one side, trying to attract uh, regular citizens into this convention created a, a a body that was, by some, as you explained, seen as not fully legitimate or in, in, uh, equipped to do their job, but on the other side. The uh, the connection that people feel with political parties seem to be extraordinarily and historically weak. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a way, how could this have been solved if you if you look back in, in hindsight? I think that once the political parties have so little, um, you know, trust and connection with society, then you have a profound problem in the functioning of democracy because political parties do not just have to compete for power or for elections. They also have to simplify, uh, you know, public policy debates. They also have to represent sectors of society. So if you, you know, a social democrat or a Christian democrat, or if you're a conservative or you're liberal or you're, you know, uh, an environmentalist, if, you know, you feel represented by a certain party and that party th says that this is a bad policy or that you're against this, you know, nuclear plants in Germany or that, you know, you're in favor or against, uh, uh, you know, pension reform in France, then you understand that then you should be against or, or for because you have this connection with this ideology or this party. Uh, so political parties help, you know, represent your views, but also help you understand that why the political debates, you know, they simplified complex, uh, they, they should, <laughs> that's what the role that they should play, they should simplify complex debates so that citizens can grasp them and, 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 and feel, uh, you know, uh, included in, in this discussion. Once this is gone, you know, citizens have no way of, uh, you know, dealing with all the information. And if you don't have anybody that you trust to say, you know, this is good, this is bad, and we should go with this or not. Uh, it makes so it, it makes so much harder for everybody to be able to have a say, and and then you're much more inf uh, influential, you know that you know social networks or Facebook or uh, fake, you know, or this information starts playing an, an important role because then you you where will you uh, be informed? Thank you, Marcela. That's very interesting. Let me just ask, given that acknowledgement or that analysis, 
when you look back uh, in hindsight, what do you think could have been done differently? What should have been done differently to perhaps ameliorate some of these issues? Maybe the electoral design uh, should have been different so that uh, we didn't allow for independent lists of candidates. Because, you know, that I think that was a key point because... Uh, because there was so much anti-political party sentiment, that was something that it's a lesson that uh, is, uh, and it was the first time that in a constitutional convention in the world you had such a such a uh, a possibility. Because one thing is to be an independent in a party list or run on your own if you're sometimes somebody that is really popular in a city or some very influential in a district. Uh, and people know you as a person, but a, a completely different thing was uh, for people to come together and construct lists, uh, you know, nationally without even knowing each other. You know, uh, I think that's something that um, that played an important role, and that pro- should be uh, 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 looked at with a lot of detail in other processes of such of this kind. Um, I think lots of policymakers around the world has have watched this process in Chile just because uh, there are contexts which are similar, not in the sense that uh, they have this you know exact uh, same processes, but that there is you know 188 countries in the world have constitutions and they regularly need to be updated, and the idea that um, that uh, uh, that constitutions bring with them is the very core idea of nationhood of institutions and and governance and and uh, this uh, this challenge of creating a legitimate process in a time of of social strife and large inequalities uh, is something i think so many policymakers are struggling with all over the world so maybe we can just quickly touch on that question, uh, Marcella, when you look at the world and the region uh, and you abstract uh, from your experience and Chile's experience in this really complicated and long drawn out, as you just uh, explained, process towards a new constitution, uh, are there any specific lessons that you think policymakers elsewhere should learn or take note of when they embark on large transitional transformational processes in their governance systems? Well, I think we're in a particular moment in history, Irving, with a lot of scholars are saying that we're in a moment of democratic backsliding or, you know, where the uh, or the strengthening of authoritarian regimes or not just authoritarian regimes, but authoritarianism within societies, even even when you continue having, you know, uh, formal democratic institutions. So we are in a moment where, you know, the agenda of rights uh, It's, it has been threatened, and um, and I think we have to understand that uh, constitutional building processes, uh, norms, and this is something that is very important in Latin America. Rules and norms are not sufficient to uh, construct solid governance institutions. You know, uh, even in legalistic societies, we need we need delivery <laughs> in the sense that government must also and states must resolve real everyday questions of, of, of citizens. I think that if we don't have uh, you know the you know the most perfect 
constitutional texts or you know the the best um, you know policies in terms of governance. And for instance, Latin America has been at the vanguard of innovation in in governance in in many aspects. But if those um, regulations are not connected to solving issues of health, of education, uh, access to water or pensions, uh, then it's difficult that we will be able to build legitimacy for state institutions because people need to see that their representatives, that their institutions, that their governments are working to solve, you know, to improve their living conditions. And I think so that I think that's uh, key. But the other thing that's key, and it, this is something also that that the Oslo Governance Center and the UNDP have been working on, the UN, I think that has to continue to be a, a, a priority, is the fight against corruption. Because one of the things that I've seen, not just theoretically, but practically, is that even when you have good norms and good uh, institutions, and when you are in, implementing sound public policies, when you have corruption scandals, when people see that politicians are getting, uh, you know, are enriching themselves, or that, uh, you know, that uh, institutions promote nepotism or clientelism, or, you know, favor sector certain groups over others because of, uh, of, of whatever reason, that also diminishes profoundly the trust in, in institutions. And when you lose that trust, it's so hard to rebuild it. So we have to make all the efforts necessary to accompany, you know, um, institutional building process with really sound and strong uh, rule of law and 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 prevention of corruption. Because I think that it's 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 completely damaging to trust uh, and to uh, legitimacy. Uh, in addition to these issues or these reasons for this process failing, um, in an earlier conversation, you mentioned to me the importance of uh, information pollution or disingenuous uh, um, news uh, pieces that impacted on the process. And there's one very striking fact, for example, that the that the draft constitution was was very uh, radically radical in terms of uh, of fulfilling the rights of indigenous peoples and in. Uh, in Chile, but when it came to actually voting on it in the plebiscite, uh, many of these areas uh, voted it down, even though, uh, you know, you would think it would be in their interest to vote for such a constitution. Um, so can you just reflect on that, the, the fact that uh, this an intense uh, reform process like this also has an accompanying public uh, uh, conversation environment and media picture? And how did that look in Chile? Yeah. I think this is a really important question that we really need to continue studying, understanding how how intermediation of media and social networks uh, impact decisions of people. And also there was this sort of um, you know discussion that uh, the recognizing the plurinationality uh, in in Chile meant that indigenous people would have more rights than everybody else, or that they would um have the land that was taken away from them that you know now people were going to lose their land because it was, was going to be given to indigenous peoples all sorts of interpretations about this that really uh made a damaging thing and then you know why the the regions it i think is something that we have to explore a lot of there's a lot of um 
evangelicals among indigenous peoples in the south of Chile. And I've heard a, a, a couple of researchers comment that also the sexual and reproductive norms were really not really appealing to evangelicals, particularly because of the way that the uh, abortion was framed in the text. Uh, there were a lot of people who felt uh, alienated by this. And so a lot of indigenous people might have not just voted against the indigenous people's rights aspects of the constitution, but also these other mm. other dimensions. Mm. So uh, I do think that this information, as it has been shown in other countries and in other processes, you know, referendums are really complicated mechanism for taking decisions that are complex and multidimensional. You know, they they have the the simplicity of you know, putting to the sovereign a question and, and having a quick decision. But they have this really troublesome uh, uh, dimension where how, what are you saying yes to or no to? Are you, are you saying yes to the entire text or is it that you didn't like, the, you know, the article on housing or mm, on mm. water rights or you're really alienated by the way that it treated, uh, you know, uh, sexual and reproductive rights, you know. It's, it's it's hard when you're a citizen uh, to everybody, you know, I, I, I like, you know, three quarters of the text, but I really dislike this two articles, you know, so I think that's something also that we have continued to, you know, and the same happened with Brexit and the same happened with the referendum in Colombia to approve the peace accords that are really complex, uh, multidimensional questions posed to a society and you you can only say yes or no. So we we have to continue uh, discussing the 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 role of referendums, the use of them, and to try to understand what people are trying to say when they're uh, when they're saying yes or no. Marcela, thank you so much for spending time with us uh, on this uh, podcast. I hope to be exchanging ideas uh, with you also in the future. And we will be, of course, watching what's happening in Chile very closely. And as you know, um, better than anyone, the UNDP is engaged also uh, in this process uh, on the ground. So um, uh, thank you so much for spending time with us and, um, uh, and hope to see you again soon, Marcela. I hope to see you all soon too. And uh, that I hopefully get to visit Oslo soon. <laughs> I came away from that conversation with a lot of new insights, but also a number of questions. So I thought it would be a good idea to invite a few second opinions. Luckily, we got two of them. Benedikte Bull is professor of political science at the University of Oslo, and she's the current president of the board of the Nordic Latin America Institute at the University of Stockholm, and has been the head of the Oslo Academy for Global Governance. Alfredo Samodio is director of the Mission in Chile of the Nansen Center for Peace and Dialogue. And Alfredo is originally from Arica in Chile and has lived in Norway since 1976. He has more than 30 years experience of human rights work and conflict transformation work from places like Colombia, Sudan and East Timor. 
So, Alfredo and Benedicte, thank you so much for being part of this uh, podcast, this uh, episode on uh, on exploring these fundamental reforms of uh, governance systems, uh, and in this particular case, uh, the reform of the basis for most governance systems, the constitution. When you listen to the interview with the former Minister of Justice from Chile, what uh, what reflections uh, do you have? My thank you for having me um, at this podcast. Um, my reflections were many. When I was listening to Marcella, I was recalling the conversations that we at the Nansen Center for Peace and Dialogue have heard since the um, protest started in 2019, and uh, and also what we have learned since then. Um, in the current context of Chile, it, it is evident for us that there is not only a re-encounter between intellects and knowledge, it is also a meeting again, a re-encounter between emotions and feelings. So the, this reunion, to say it like that, between Chileans with different positions, it is not only about what they say or what they think, it is also what they feel. And the lack of room for a place where they could share their memories and their understandings of the past, that has been one of the problems that we have had in the past and that it is very important to create those meeting places in the, in the, in the present. Without meeting points where you can also, in addition to knowledge, in addition to intellect, in addition to ideas, you create you create um, the room, the space, the safe space where you can um, deliver your memories and your thoughts and your emotions. I think that we are looking forward for a longer process of not understanding each other. So when I was listening to Marcella, I felt that in her testimony, in her words, there is a longing. Why are we not listening to each other? And for me, as a person working on dialogue, I feel tempted to say it is because we are not on, we are not talking about our emotions. That's fascinating to listen to, Alfredo, your reflections on this. And, and, uh, and maybe that's the case, right, that we think of uh, constitution-making processes as very technical processes, more than human processes. Is, is that what you're trying to convey here, that there is a need to see these documents as, uh, as expressions of, of human will and feelings, uh, perhaps as much as, as political ideology and, and, and a political statement? When uh, when we first came to Chile in 2019, we heard from everyone, from many sides uh, of the divisions, that Chile needed uh, uh, what they call it in Spanish, un nuevo pacto social, a new social treat, where we need to find a way to interact with each other. But that interaction is not only legal, it's about also how do we see each other, what do we? What is our identity as a people or peoples? So without having the space to have that conversation, it becomes a, only a theoretical and legal conversation. And that is not reflecting the whole of the problem of the, comp- of the complex situation of, the, of Chile. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for that, Alfredo. Uh, Benedicte, what about you? What What did you hear uh, when you when you listened to Marcella uh, and her story? Well, uh, I uh, of course I listened to uh, the uh, the story uh, after uh, I knew the results of uh, the election of the Constituent Assembly, and of course it's very difficult to to distinguish the feeling uh, uh, of learning those results and and uh, what she is talking about there. And my first thought is what a difference a week can make and how unpredictable these uh, constituent processes can be. And they've already been unpredictable in Chile and the election of these this new constituent assembly in a different format, there were different rules. Now there was uh, compulsory, compulsory voting and um, there was also no independent list, but it was all representatives of, from parties. And still it produced a, a new earthquake in bringing in a very small, a very, uh, very recently very small uh, and very new uh, extreme right party now having um, uh, more than one third of the votes and the governmental coalition has less than one third of the vote in total. And so it's a completely new situation that has been brought in by that, um, that, uh, that last election. Um, and so I think that is uh, that is one of my reflections, how, how risky, how unpredictable these processes can be and how difficult it is to manage them. But otherwise, there was lots of different points, I thought, that were really important. And um, uh, one thing that struck me is the complexity of this, the, the fact that people have multiple identities. Uh, that um, the process was driven by uh, by a broad coalition, but on the left, and that very much identified themselves as being on the left and seeking support for the process based on that. But uh, in fact, people have many different identities. As was mentioned by Marcela, they're indigenous. They might also be uh, evangelicals. They have have different uh, opinions on what might be called value issues compared to the economic issues. And in, in the way that the process of this uh, const, uh, constitution was kind of uh, driven, it, it was incredibly complex. It was what some people have called a maximalist constitution that seeks to uh, talk about every aspect of life and how difficult it is to really agree on that uh, uh, because you, you cement a number of political uh, opinions and you ask people to vote yes or no and that is virtually impossible and uh, i think that I, I very much agree with with alfredo that there's a need for what we i'm a political scientist and that will be revealed many times through this conversation the need for deliberation deliberative democracy for talking about issue for establishing a kind of a consensus of some sort of direction before uh, a fixed document is agreed on. And, and that is uh, where the process might have been uh, very deficient for a number of different reasons in, in Chile. But it's a very interesting point. So what you're saying is that uh, it's important that constitution-making processes uh, uh, basically manage to span the full range of opinions in the country. Otherwise, 
uh, it won't have the legitimacy. The process won't have the legitimacy if these deliberative processes don't allow for these voices and opinions to come through, right? Yeah, and I think uh, many people wanted to use the constitutional process to change the country, to yeah. sort of uh, move the country forward, to be something very different. But there wasn't a complete agreement on how on the path towards that change. And um, many other constitutions are rather kind of a minimum of what we can agree upon. It, do it doesn't sort of uh, provide a path to a ch political change. It's rather kind of a basic minimum. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Mendicta. Uh, <clears throat> Alfredo, are there... Uh, aspects of this uh, of this process that uh, that sh should be taken note of by by people outside of Chile. Is there is there other some important lessons here that that um, should be noted? Thank you. When I, I was invited to the former constitutional um, constitutional convention to speak to the plenary, and what I tried to convey to them is that. After every major crisis, you can go immediately and quickly to find some sort of agreement on the superficial and you may hit or may not. But the deeper the crisis, the, more, the, the stronger the need to have a stop, a reflection, and to ask yourself the question, what did happen to us? Why, why did it happen? If you give yourself time, in addition to the technical issues of creating a legal instrument, you, if you create a path where the country can speak among themselves, where the constitution people can speak among themselves, and also you can have a dialogue between the constitutional process and the people. And some sort of, you know, it, 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 these are very big words, but it's a kind of a national dialogue, but what we call a conversation on national interest. You need to involve civil society, you need to involve institutions, you need to involve people. Because this, the story of Chile has not only happened to the politicians, has also happened to people. And people have still a say. And if they have a say in the process forward, you may create something that changes and, or current present and also the future and can be an example for other countries in the region. Mm. Can, when I listen to you, you know this this seems to make a lot of sense. But but it also seems to be quite a high bar, right? If you're going to, if if all constitution making processes are to take in the full breadth and depth of uh, national experiences of a crisis or a trauma or uh, or of a system left behind. Um, you know, it almost seems like is is there a perfect solution to this, or, or or is it inevitably imperfect? And and if so, you know, can we deal with this imperfection in any way? What what does the Chile experience teach us about dealing with imperfections? I will, uh, you know, Benedict is the expert on these issues. But what we studied when we were working on Chile on this, we studied a document that, um, written by the Barhof Foundation in Germany, which studied 19 constitutional processes. Some of them have an element of a national dialogue in a parallel way. Uh, you know, all, all the countries have different stories, all the countries have different needs, but some sort of a dialogue process, 
parallel to the formal processes um, may be useful uh, in certain contexts. So in, it, it is, I am not saying that in a formal process you need to have the voices of everyone, but having a system where you can allow voices and you can allow experiences, you create a little bit more a trust and saying that they are listening to me, they, are, they understand what is happening to us. That sentiment is important to give room for in a national conversation. Benedicta, what about your reflections on this? I mean, uh, is it possible to create a perfect constitutional process? Um, uh, or, or maybe that's a, that's an unfair question. But what is it? Uh, you know, what can one learn from the Chile experience in terms of uh, uh, understanding? You know, um, what imperfections to accept and what not to accept uh, in the constitutional process? Because I think we can all agree that they are bound to be complicated whichever country these constitutional uh, uh, you know uh, renewals uh, are are happening they're bound to be complicated but but what is good enough in a way is there is it possible to say <laughs> i think we should first ask what is good enough in terms of constitutions because there was some critical voices against the need for uh creating a completely new constitution uh, in, in the case of Chile. And, and that question implies at least two other questions, sort of what's the symbolic uh, and, and kind of, um, yeah, the symbolic nature of the constitution and then the, the actual content. And in Chile, a lot of people wanted a new constitution because it was written during the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet by his, um, uh, his group. And, uh, but there was also some 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 parts of the constitution that really hindered social progress the uh, extreme protection of private property the limitation of state uh, action in various different fields etc uh, but i th some of these issues could have been uh, changed with just amending and changing the constitution without starting anew uh, but that would not have solved the symbolic uh, issue and thus not perhaps in turn the legitimacy issue, which is so key to these constitutional processes. So I think that is the first thing to, to think of when a state is in crisis, because it's often in crisis that, that uh, uh, countries start new constitutional processes um, and that it involves a lot of risk. Uh, but I think also to remember that you are not, you cannot change everything with a constitution. This is just a platform. This is a the kind of the basic agreement. Um, and so I think the main lesson from the Chilean process is that uh, they went too far in terms of trying to change people's sentiments and 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 the the country through the constitution. I remember when reading the first paragraph in the draft that was. Uh, that was published uh, in May last year. Um, that became the second paragraph in the end, but uh, it starts with a very controversial description of the, who's the people of Chile, uh, with a lot of what pe some people would think would be very kind of, yeah, strange concepts of multiple sexual identities, etc. And so I think many people were just put off by the wording of, of the Constitution. 
I think those things could have been avoided, but there were so many controversial issues in the process. They tried to do everything with the constitutional process, and that in turn uh, created a lot of um, a lot of um, resentment. And I think it's also uh, important to think of the timing issue because what has happened in Chile was that there was a lot of interest in the process in the beginning. Um, then there was a lot of scandals related to the, the first constitutional assembly that also Marcela talked about. And then over time, people have become tired of the whole, whole process. They've become much more concerned with a lot of other issues that are not related to the constitution. Security and crime are on top of those, according to the, uh, to the polls. And so they, they just want to get it over with, get back to having some order in the country, and, uh, and, and a lot of that political energy and interest. And this kind of uh, what was very interesting to, to us observing this from the outside is, is kind of gone. Now they just have to try to rescue the process. Uh, this particular context of Chile, uh, of social uprising being the background for uh, for major governance system reform, is not unique. Um, I mean, we've seen it in many parts of the world, and, and we continue to see it. Um, Benedicta, what sort of reflections do you have around that? I mean, what what do we learn from uh, social uprising as a basis or as a takeoff point for major system reform? I think there's a lot of lessons to learn here. And I think that uh, we as kind of political scientists, external observers, we have a tendency, at least when looking at Latin America, of, of celebrating uh, all kinds of social uprisings as finally the, the people have stood up. And, and that is what is going to drive change. And to some extent, that is true. I mean, it is an important democratic expression. But we have perhaps also uh, contributed to a certain resentment of of experts, uh, of experts of constitutional processes and and many other issues. They've been kind of lumped into the, the slightly derogatory uh, concept of technocrats. And if and that's seen as something that works against democracy, because it, it, it reduces uh, the influence to a small group. But I think that what the process in Chile have taught us is that we need to find a balance between, uh, between the people, those that come in with experiences from their lives with very legitimate concerns and, uh, and experts that can try to, to mold this into um, um, documents that can be workable in all sorts of situations. And that is uh, actually a really important part of, of democracy as well. And I think that it that is threatened for many sides, not only those that were demonstrating in the streets of, uh, of Chile, mostly on the left, but also, of course, uh, um, populist right-wing is very, um, is very anti-experts because of their nature as kind of anti-elites. Um, and I have studied elites both in Chile and other countries in Latin America, so I feel a bit kind of guilty of 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 drumming up this anti-elite sentiment. But we need to make that nuanced and find uh, solutions that that are can work for everybody. I think that is, um, and and Chile is a case of uh, where 
many people have felt that a small economic elite aligned with politics and aligned with big business has ruled the country uh, and kind of prevented any real democracy to emerge in spite of uh, the return to democracy in 1990. And so this whole process should revert that feeling and that resentment. But I think we've learned from Chile that there is a need for a common platform uh, even in those kind of situations, it is not a solution to change the dominance of one group with the dominance of another that will not work uh, in the long term. Thank you. Thank you for those wise words and reflections, Benedicta. Uh, Alfredo, a final question to you. Um, this must be a, a special time for you. I mean, I know that you have you have uh, a, a a deep history of your personal history intertwined with the political situation in in Chile you are yourself a a refugee um how how has it been to be not only uh, you know looking at this from a distance but being a part of uh, many parts of this process being asked to contribute how has it felt as a as a Chilean a Norwegian to to be in this situation um, I was 12 years old when uh, 50 years ago I saw my father be arrested and the day after the military coup. Um, my father and I lived alone and I became alone for three years until, until the Norwegian ambassador of that time <clears throat> um, succeeded in liberating my father. And we came to Norway and, you know, I did my professional career here working on different issues, mostly human rights, humanitarian aid. And um, this process in Chile has also been a, a, a way for me to reflect on what have I learned in other crises, in other situations, in Colombia, in Sudan, in the Balkans, in East Timor, in Uganda and other places. And there building on what Benedicta just said, you know, that um, we need to have <coughs> collaborative societies. If we allow the forces uh, of dominance against the other, we will over and over again come into situations where one group rolls over the other, and we will meet more human suffering more people dying, more people evicted from the homes, evicted from the countries. That is something that we in the 21st century need to avoid. We, need, we know that the past has been difficult, the present is difficult, and the crisis in front of us, what is coming to us as humanity, is even more difficult. So we need to find the ways to create and collaborative efforts and to create societies of disagreements that we don't need to reach consensus and everything. And, and so I, I say that, you know, from the personal aspect, you know, with my personal emotions, my personal feelings, I believe what I say. We, are, we, we need to find a way to create collaborative societies despite our differences. We don't need consensus on everything. But we can create some a path for the future, and in order to do that, we need to understand where we are coming from, and we need to transform what is now. Thank you, both of you, for spending time with us uh, in this uh, podcast, Benedict and Alfredo. Uh, it's given us a unique perspective of events in Chile, but not least also perhaps given some sense of how to understand it in a broader context. 
thank you so much and we will keep in touch. Thank you so much for listening and I really do hope that this was uh, food for thought for you. And that's really the purpose of these podcasts. It's not to uh, put forward definitive answers. It's to allow for these conversations to happen between people who care about how power is distributed, used and controlled. And really, that conversation should continue beyond simply listening to or tuning into this uh, podcast. So do look us up on social media, UNDP Oslo Governance Center, and engage with us. What is your reaction to this episode? What thoughts were ignited in your mind? Let us know, and hopefully we can have a continued conversation there. And do remember to subscribe to this podcast and make sure to share it with your friends. In that way, we can make the conversation even more inclusive. Thank you very much for listening.